With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we have the initial 2024 water supply allocations for Central Valley Project contractors and the CoBank report that details the impacts of a shrinking supply of dairy heifers. But our top story today, the Agriculture Secretary says spending now on reducing wildfire risks will pay off in future years. Here's Gary Crawford. The administration's putting more attention, more work, and investing more money into protecting more communities from being devastated by wildfires. The risk of wildfires being catastrophic or out of control gets reduced every single year we continue to do this work. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack telling reporters Tuesday the billions of dollars going into that work will bring a big return on investment. The return on investment is, is safer communities. It's protected watersheds. It's uh, miles of power lines that are under less risk. And he says the hazardous fuel being removed from forests can be used to make many new products. Which is obviously a job creator uh, and obviously, uh, you know, hopefully an opportunity for uh, for this hazardous fuel to be used in a, in a positive and proactive way. Vilsack said the job of reducing wildfire risk is going to take several years. He hopes Congress will act on the budget to ensure steady funding for those years to come. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Members of the American Farm Bureau Federation are asking Congress to pass the Farm Bill this year. Michael Clements shares more on these efforts. American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall says it's critical that Congress finishes a farm bill this year. Well, there are only a few pieces of legislation that are more significant than the farm bill when it comes to helping our farmers secure our food supply. The farm bill is essential to our farmers and ranchers as it ensures funding for risk management tools that are important to them. Farming is difficult and risky business, and the Farm Bill helps farmers weather the storms. Even though Congress passed an extension of the 2018 Farm Bill, getting a new Farm Bill done is still a priority of ours. Farmers and ranchers need and deserve a modernized Farm Bill that reflects changes our industry has gone through in the last five years. Duvall says Farm Bureau members are sending a clear message to Congress. The Farm Bill can't wait. We ask our members to step up to the plate to advocate for this issue and boy, have they done that. Our members have sent more than 10,000 messages to their senators and representatives asking them to get the Farm Bill done. We've had messages from all over the country and nearly every state. Our members from California to Florida to Texas to Minnesota have made their voices heard. He encourages all farmers and ranchers to get involved in Farm Bill advocacy. The best thing you can do is reach out to your elected official and tell them how the Farm Bill is important to your farm. You can share your story about how the Farm Bill has helped you and what you would like to see written in the new Farm Bill. If you're not already a Farm Bureau member, we encourage you to join us by going to your local county Farm Bureau and getting involved with the grassroots. Learn more at fb.org advocacy. Michael Clements, Washington. Here is this week's Fungicide Management Minute brought to you by Corteva. On the phone with us this week is Western Market Manager for Corteva, Daniel Abruzzini. So Daniel, this week, let's talk about how to implement integrated disease management strategies. And so to start us off, give us an idea of what a good disease management strategy is. Yeah, I think when it comes to disease management strategies, there's a few different ways. Um, One, you know, scouting your fields on a regular basis, depending on the crop that you have in the seasons. And then also just being aware of the weather patterns and kind of um, what you're dealing with, you know, if it's a rainy season or if it's cool weather um, or, you know, high humidity. Um, so those, those are some of the things you need to be aware of and also just past history of, uh, of your field. Those things can all lead to a successful season and also choosing the correct fungicide 
potentially look at or use to prevent any of the problems that you might see in that field. Mm -hmm. So with this season in California, what should growers be looking for with the type of crazy weather that we've had? Yeah, you know, so far with the El Nino pattern, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of rain events have been coming through, a lot of atmospheric rivers. And product like Fontellus and Tree Nuts is giving an excellent opportunity. It has great control on, on diseases such as jacket rot, brown rot, scab, and others. And um, so, you know, a product like that, I think, would have a perfect fit for someone this spring. What should some first steps be to implementing their disease management strategy? Uh, you know, some of the first steps, again, I think, is just uh, looking at the frat groups and kind of what the diseases are that you're trying to control. You know, we offer different frat group fungicides at Corteva. Uh, one is Indar, which would be a frat group three. And then, as I mentioned, we have Fontellus, um, that's a seven. And we also have a new one this year approach that's a standout alone 11. So in our rotation program, you could kind of plug that in. Each one of those have certain strengths. Um, you know, Indar being a more early season fungicide approach, you can kind of apply in the middle of the season. And then Fontellus, you can finish up. And so that'd be kind of a complete program that Corteva would have to offer. All right. So we've gone through a lot of information where can growers go to get more information or to go through again what we've talked about? So we have a, a website you can go to. It's uh, corteva.us backslash fungicide resistance. And you can go there to find more information on any of the products that we talked about today. Thank you, Daniel. Again, this is the Fungicide Management Minute brought to you by Corteva. And if you'd like to hear all of that information again, you can also find it on our website, agnetwest.com. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, the Census of Agriculture offers examples of not just farming and ranching, but of ag's significance to all consumers. Rod Bain reports. How might the results of the 2022 USDA Census of Agriculture impact you, even you who aren't involved in agriculture in some way, shape, or form? Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack provides some examples, starting with numbers collected regarding production of food and farm goods that you consume. How we have significantly increased productivity, a three-fold increase since 1948. Done without significant increases in labor, soil nutrients, and other inputs over that time. More food to give American consumers more variety. More food exported to foreign markets, increasing both global food security and domestic job creation. Another example, perhaps you have seen more direct sales by growers to consumers in your local area. A roadside farm stand, an online store, a farmer's market booth, a retail space or building in town. Over 110,000 farmers sold directly to consumers per the 2022 Census of Ag generating $3.3 billion, with a B, dollars in revenue. The notion that by selling directly to a consumer, instead of through a very extensive and sometimes expensive supply chain, the farmer can actually get a better deal. Perhaps a rural resident has experienced high-speed internet for the first time in their home or farm over the five-year period between censuses of agriculture to improve ability to do schoolwork or run a web-based business. Brian Combs of the National Agricultural Statistics Service says on the farm level, Overall, internet access has increased from 75% to 79%. Generally, internet access rates were highest in the western and northern states, and there was actually a very large increase in mobile access for the type of internet access on farms that moved from 39% in 2017 to 62% in 2022. Increased broadband access also provides new, expanding, and existing businesses increased opportunities to start up a company 
or perhaps relocate one to a rural community. If one is wondering where their food supply is coming from, one source is those wishing to pursue careers as ag producers. Combs says increases are found in the categories of new and beginning and young farmers from the previous census of ag in 2017 to the latest edition. The census counted over 1 million new and beginning producers. 296,480 young producers were reported and that's about 8.8% of the U.S. total. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, last year's intense culling has set up the cattle industry for an interesting new chapter when herd rebuilding begins. Tightening of resources encourages producers to only retain the best genetics for replacements. Randy Block, CEO of Cattle Facts, shares more. If you go back into the last drought cycle we went through, you know, we went through a very, very difficult drought in 2008 to 2012. When we came out of that drought and we started to rebuild in 13, 14, 15, we did rebuild with a much higher quality uh, replacement heifers went into those areas, uh, much improved genetics. I think we're, we've seen that play out for the entire last decade with higher quality cattle all the way through the central plains. We've seen the, the quality grade on cattle improve. So again, today, in the last three years, our average choice and prime uh, percentage of, of animals that we're producing on an annual basis is 83%. Well, you contrast that back into 2000, it was 50%. So, again, these are opportunities, as you said, for us to to improve genetics as we go through them, put higher quality animals that the market really wants, that it's willing to pay for. Um, uh, these are good times for us. But, again, it's very difficult when producers have had to go through droughts and things like that and have had to downsize their cow herds and, and now are restocking at higher price levels. So there's always trade-offs in each of these things. Looking at that restocking, there are some factors to keep in mind when planning towards herd rebuilding. We have to make sure we always stay focused on, on matching our cows to our environment. And I would say, in general, as I look across the industry, the size of our cows has continued to increase. I mean, these cows have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and our carrying capacity has declined as we've looked at that. So uh, those are things we have to take into account. Again, I think part of that you can you can see if you just step back with me and think about this. 1975, our peak cattle inventory numbers were 132 million. Yeah, we got 87 or 88 million cattle in our inventory. So we're... You look at where we're at today, just call it 40 million fewer cattle in our total inventory. And yet 2022 is the biggest beef production in the history of our industry. So case in point, more, bigger cattle. That's what we've seen. There's been a lot of other factors that have gone into it is very intentional breeding practices, much more focused breeding practices or genetics are better. Our nutrition programs are better. Our animal husbandry and welfare practices are so, so much improved in here. We're weaning a much higher percent live calf crop than we would have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. 
All these things work together when you look at those production numbers that I just shared. So the quality of product we're producing uh, is has never been better. At least in the last 40 years, we've not had this type of quality product. And I applaud the industry. I mean, they, they listen to the consumer, and we've been rewarded for that. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. A report from Rabo Research indicates a significant rebound is underway for almonds. Senior analyst covering fruits and tree nuts for Rabo AgriFinance, David Magania, detailed some of the almond pricing expectations moving forward. We are expecting a significant rebound starting this marketing season, probably 40 to 50 cents higher than the blended price a year ago. And then going forward, as macroeconomic conditions improve globally, we are expecting shipments to continue strong in the next few years. So despite that we're expecting California almond crop go back to 3 billion pounds or potentially a little bit higher in the next few years, achievements must continue a strong pace. So then we are expecting that price may stabilize in the next few years at a higher level. The diminishing supply of dairy heifers in the U.S., reaching a 20-year low, may hinder significant growth in domestic milk production. According to a new report from CoBank's Knowledge Exchange, the increasing costs of raising heifer calves have surpassed increases in heifer values. Those economic conditions have prompted farmers to reduce replacement inventories by breeding more heifers and cows with beef bulls. This strategy helps cut rearing costs and generate additional income from beef sales. The discrepancy between rearing costs and sale values has led to a steady decline in replacement heifers. While some fluctuation in replacement heifer population is normal, a sufficient inventory is vital for the continuity and expansion of U.S. milk production. The current scarcity of replacement heifers has led to an eight-year high in replacement prices, likely to persist due to tight supply. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is celebrating a decade of aiding farmers and communities in making climate-informed decisions through regional climate hubs. Established in 2014, these regional centers support farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners in addressing climate change issues. Comprised of over 120 climate experts, the hubs collaborate with various USDA agencies and partners to embed climate resilience into planning, accelerate science-based solutions, and equip communities with adaptation strategies. Notable projects include strengthening climate resilience in Native American communities, educating forest owners on carbon and climate-smart forestry, and providing technical support for agricultural land and forest managers. Regional approaches help tailor solutions to unique climate impacts, empowering stakeholders to manage climate risks effectively. Initial water allocations have been made for Central Valley Project contractors. U.S. Bureau of Reclamation's Central Valley Operations Officer Levi Johnson detailed some of the allocations that were announced earlier this week. At this time, agricultural water service contractors north of Delta are allocated 75% of their contract supply. Municipal and industrial water service contractors north of Delta are allocated 100% of their historical use. 
South of Delta agricultural water service contractors are allocated 15% of their contract total. Municipal and industrial contractors South of Delta are allocated 65% of their historical use or public health and safety needs or whichever is greater. The San Joaquin River Exchange contractors and San Joaquin Settlement contractors are allocated 100% of their contract supply. The Lake County Walnut Update is coming up next month at the Scotts Valley Women's Club in Lakeport. Sponsored by the University of California Cooperative Extension, Lake County Department of Agriculture, and California Walnut Board, the meeting is scheduled for Thursday, March 21st, beginning at 8 in the morning. The first set of presentations will cover topics such as whole orchard recycling, increasing problems of flat-headed borer in walnut orchards, and considerations for effective use of cover crops. After the morning break, there will be discussions on orchard weed management, NRCS programs and incentives, and testing new lures for walnut husk fly. CEO of the California Walnut Commission, Robert Verloop, will be giving an industry update after lunch, which will be followed by a panel and attendee discussion. More information about the Walnut Meeting is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. USDA is investing more money into reducing wildfire risks in California and other western areas. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. The USDA is investing another half a billion dollars to expand efforts to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires. This will continue our work uh, in terms of hazardous fuel reduction. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack telling reporters Tuesday it's all part of a plan to help 21 selected landscape areas protect themselves against wildfires. But he said part of that $500 million new investment will be for a new program. This is uh, allowing us to begin to expand beyond the 21 priority areas into areas which we refer to as the Wildland Urban Interface, or WUI. And this is going to allow us to help build local uh, capacity to provide tools and resources uh, so that we can uh, provide those communities with assistance and help. California's Natural Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot called the expanded investments truly a game changer. In Washington, Gary Crawford. Several parts of the southern U.S. are experiencing high temperatures this week that more reflect early spring than late winter. Here's Rod Bain. The final week of meteorological winter looks much more like spring in some parts of the country. According to the National Phenology Network, we are seeing leaf out for trees occurring up to two weeks early in a broad stretch from the southern plains all the way to the Carolinas and southeastern Virginia. And we are also seeing some record early leaf out in parts of northern California, as well as the Pacific Northwest, mainly west of the Cascades, where spring also is coming incredibly early this year. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says potential ag impacts include vulnerability to freeze events for small grains and blooming fruit crops. But for now, we are looking at temperatures early this week that will be topping 80 in much of Texas. And then following a brief cool down later this week, it looks like that warm weather is going to come roaring back across the south next week even stronger. With the potential for those temperatures to rise and expand to other parts of the country. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We go now to Chuck Zimmerman in San Diego. I'm visiting with Robert White with the Renewable Fuels Association. We're at the National Ethanol Conference. And Robert, here in San Diego, you guys put on a pump promotion. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, so one of the first promotional events of the Veterans for Renewable Fuels, a special project that the RFA launched on Veterans Day in 2023, was to give veterans and active duty personnel free E85 here in the San Diego metro 
uh, for three hours yesterday. And if you weren't a veteran or weren't on active duty still, uh, then you got it for $1.85. So it was a good deal for everyone involved. And what was fun to watch was the older FFEs come in, the people that really needed a little help in the budget, right? And so we got to talk to them. We got to remind them of the connection with the veterans and renewable fuels, specifically ethanol, uh, myself, Justin Schultz, Jeff Cooper, all on hand, all veterans, all RFA staff uh, helping spread that joy. So did you have a pretty good crowd coming through? Yeah, the crowd was really good. We, you know, you had moments because obviously it's one in eight, nine vehicles out here in California. So yeah, you, it's not every car can use it, but we actually identified a couple that w- didn't know and they, they didn't know they had a flex fuel vehicle. But here in California, because of the low carbon fuel standard, uh, RENs, the market value between ethanol and gasoline just in general. Yesterday at the pump, before we even did the discount, it was a $1.60, $1.80 difference. Uh, so people are trying to figure out if they have flex fuel vehicles or they're calling the Midwest looking for used ones to buy. Uh, but yesterday was a good deal for all. So this is just an example of one of the uh, projects part of the initiative. What are some of the other things you got? Yeah, so it's really about camaraderie. It's about making sure veterans have a a safe place uh, to get together, to have some brotherhood, sisterhood, get together and just have an outlet. If something's going wrong in your life, you know, we want to make sure that we don't lose a veteran because we didn't do something. And we lose so many veterans to suicide, uh, to other catastrophic events if we can save one soldier one sailor whatever it is if 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 we can save one the whole thing was worth it uh and and that's what we're all about i mean we're gonna do a a little outing veterans only on wednesday afternoon here uh we originally had some swift boat plans but now we're going out on a seal boat so even better a little happy hour and dinner afterwards so again it's it's just making sure that whether you're in a plant you're working for one of the associate vendors Whatever it is, if you have some connection to the industry, you have some connection, direct family member that's a veteran, we welcome you with open arms. It's a great project, and good to see you here at the National Ethanol Conference. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. What's the latest information concerning highly pathogenic avian influenza in our nation and its impacts on poultry flocks, prevention, and mitigation efforts? Here's Rod Bain. When it comes to the current status of highly pathogenic avian influenza in our nation, the Agriculture Department's chief veterinarian recently offered a one-word response to state directors and commissioners of agriculture. Still. As in still around, according to Dr. Roseberry Siffert. This current outbreak of high path AI actually began almost two years ago and as of January of this year, was credited for the slaughter of nearly 82 million birds, mostly egg-laying poultry, in 47 states. I think we've seen our surges, and we've seen the troughs over the last couple of years. In the October, November, early December time frame, we saw another surge. We are still very consistently seeing that the surges are associated mostly with direct introductions from wild birds, and it's when you have wild birds in your neighborhood. Yet a silver lining can be found thanks in part to improved biosecurity efforts of bird owners. We are still seeing very low rates of farm-to-farm transmission, lateral spread. Because of the long-term nature of this current high-path avian influenza outbreak. We do have to really keep our watch up. I think in some cases we're seeing a little bit of fatigue and we're all tired of this now. But it's really, really important that we keep the message up that biosecurity is still supremely important, particularly if there are wild birds in your neighborhood. The chief veterinarian 
Marriott adds USDA and its Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service continues to review, evaluate, and adjust its response to HPAI cases as they are detected. We continue to look at our stamping out policy as a whole and whether that's still the most effective policy for us to consider. At this time, that definitely is where we believe that we are. In terms of what the rest of 2024 might look like, Regarding the trends towards a continued high path AI outbreak, we are still seeing detections in the wild birds. While the numbers are lower, they're still there. And so I would expect that as long as the migration comes back, at this point, it seems like they're going to be carrying the virus. So I think we should be prepared for that as we move into the spring. There's a lot of work going on around what's going on with this virus and how is it persisting in the wild birds. Hopefully, we'll learn more from that work and be able to use that to inform our procedures. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USDA says it's time to recognize the work of USDA conservation engineers. Here's Gary Crawford. Bet you didn't know this week is National Engineers Week. So what exactly is an engineer? It's anyone who basically uses ingenuity to solve problems. Uh, ingenuity, I heard what you did there. <laughs> Kevin Farmer directs conservation engineering for the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Our engineers are conservation-type engineers those who solve problems to help protect uh, natural resources. You know, helping folks do their thing with the land is awesome. That's Andy Dykert, award-winning USDA state conservation engineer in West Virginia. We help the farmers with uh, waste storage structures to handle their manure, and uh, they can store that in structures until it's beneficial for them to spread it on their fields. We also help improve their water for their livestock. We may develop springs or help them build farm ponds with pipelines to watering facilities. And that's just a sample of what conservation engineers do every day. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Brian German has today's featured interview. Aubrey Betancourt joins us again this morning, President and CEO of the Almond Alliance, and today we are talking about the Landflex program. And now, Aubrey, it's something that you and I have talked about before and uh, what an undertaking it's been getting the program rolled out with um, some pretty good positive results. But uh, let's start this morning with uh, some of the details about what the Landflex program uh, has been able to accomplish thus far. Yeah, Landflex has actually um, proven to be an effective and versatile on-the-ground program uh, for producing wet water with measurable results. Um, it deployed very quickly across seven uh, GSAs, uh, and in its pilot period, it immediately protected at-risk water systems up to 56,000 acre-feet of total aquifer savings, permanently retired uh, 84,000, over 84,000 acre feet of aquifer overdraft. So again, not to make anyone afraid, but part of the Landflex program was facilitating the transition to um, sustainability on farm, transitioning land into Sigma compliance based on their individual basin. And immediately through the, the program, we saw 84, over 84,000 acre feet of aquifer overdraft left in the ground, and it will be left in the ground in perpetuity, which is fantastic and contributes to the overall goal of getting aquifers to a healthy and sustainable level. That equated out to over 16,000 homes, domestic wells immediately being protected. And what happened with Landflex and its name, it really lived up to its name, is this program was designed in drought, but it ended up an extremely useful tool in flood. And so last year, particularly in phase two of the program, we saw an incredible amount of groundwater recharge facilitated on farm 
using Landflex, over 17,000 acre feet of, of water was recharged on Landflex ground um, through the Landflex program last year. And so this is becoming an incredibly versatile tool, a, a tool that can be used in, in emergency, uh, that can be turned on very quickly. And moreover, as we've talked about so many times, this is about a program geared to the farmer, for the farmer, and really harnessing the power of the farmer and the farmer maintaining their land and continuing to farm it with resources and certainty from a financial stability standpoint uh, to be able to farm uh, forward through a post-signal world, but also to be part of the solution on things like groundwater recharge, on things like flood protection, and on things like drought mitigation and protecting our communities. So it's really a farmer-focused and farmer-forward program, and we're so pleased to see these truly measurable results. And now with the California budget situation uh, not looking too positive, uh, what's that potentially mean for the Landflex program moving forward? Yeah, the program has, like we said, it's, it's proven itself. The Department of Water Resources uh, knows that, believes that, especially their Sigma team. Uh, and so the program is still alive uh, and it is still housed at Department of Water Resources. Now it's about um, developing a, a, you know, we've proven the concept through the pilot phase. Now it's about developing a sustainable funding mechanism for the program, um, which is why we're exploring diversity uh, and, and more applications of the program, particularly around emergency, um, being able to turn the program on in an emergency whether that's a flood or a drought, uh, would also help if you get into the weeds of, of how funding works. Um, emergency funding is typically faster and easier to get, even in a bad budget year. Uh, and so we're exploring that option, um, but also continuing to work with the department uh, and, and even the legislature on the importance of this program, the viability of its program, and the need to create a consistent funding mechanism for this program in order for it to expand. Um, we see so much potential with this program in multiple geographies, not just our critically overdrafted basins who are desperate to find a path to sustainability, especially on the timeline that Sigma has placed on it, but also expanding this program into other regions to assist with things like subsidence in Sac Valley, uh, to get it in the hands of even our next tier uh, overdrafted basins so they can get a jump start um, before they tip into critically overdrafted. But arming our growers and our uh, water districts and our GSAs uh, with a tool in their toolkit that provides flexibility uh, and provides certainty for them and allows them to continue to plan and be ahead of the game. Um, I think Sigma was seen as this ax that was about to fall and we now have a tool that shows that it doesn't have to be that way. And this was uh, the topic of discussion at one of the uh, seminars at World Ag Expo. And um, it seemed like there was quite a bit of engagement and questions from the crowd. So it, it's definitely a program that there's a lot of interest behind. But it sounded like just from some of the questions or comments that were made dur af after the uh, presentation, um, maybe not everyone's aware of it. So part of this is making more producers aware that this program exists and the functionality that they can implement on their operations as well. Yeah, I think a big piece to this is, and, and we are happy to help, um, you know, Almond Alliance and Western United Dairies were the technical assistance providers on this program. We are more than happy to talk to any grower uh, and any GSA or district who's interested in having access to this program. And it's important, I think, for us to, um, to ask for tools like this. And so we, we really use the opportunity at the World Ag Expo, one, of course, to make people aware of the program, but two, to really try to make folks aware of how this, this program and this tool was designed from people on the ground. And so engaging in this process and engaging with the department 
we have more power than we know as growers, as the landowners, because sustainability of the aquifer cannot be achieved without us. And thanks to this program, which created a nomenclature to track and demonstrate the actual measurable results, the department now knows that to be true. And so now is the time more than ever to be putting pressure on and asking for this tool to be expanded, but also asking for more tools like this to be developed and working with associations like ourselves and others to develop those tools. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour now for more news. USDA's Agricultural Outlook Forum, as always, provided a first take on what the current year might look like regarding ag production, prices, and other factors in the farm sector. Rod Bain reports. What does U.S. ag production and commodity prices look like for 2024? Agriculture Department Chief Economist Seth Meyer provided the annual outlook, starting with how prices support what commodities growers might plant this year. Maybe that prices support soybeans a little bit more than corn, so maybe we move a little bit of area back into soybeans. Corn prices moving a little bit lower as well. Sorghum area is largely unchanged. Wheat, after responding to the global demand for wheat because of action in the Black Sea, farmers saying, okay, we'll move out of wheat, we responded. Cotton being perhaps one of the areas where we see a little bit of area growth, and certainly if weather is normal, some big rebounds in production. And rice, pretty steady overall in area. He adds in terms of supplies, corn and bean stocks should continue to build in 2024, while wheat and rice supplies are forecasted to tighten this year. Turning to potential livestock production and prices. The price of swine, a little bit higher, but remember, feeds a lot higher. If you've got cattle and you can run them, you'll make some money. The question is, is will you have those forage conditions? Turkeys, industry facing some serious demand issues and putting a lot of downward pressure. And on eggs, there's a lot of volatility in that. We had a lot of HPAI issues. Meanwhile, slow milk production growth and firm demand, both domestically and internationally, should translate to mostly higher dairy prices in 2024. The ag forecast from USDA includes a continued lowering of output prices. Many prices showing further erosion in the next crop year. Maybe cotton not seeing much of an erosion or even a little bit of a price increase, but many of those commodities coming down in price. Coupled by consistently higher prices for most inputs. Fertilizer prices absolutely have come down from their peak. We had some thought that maybe we'll see a little bit of easing of interest rates over time, but for many of the other other lines in a crop budget, they tend to move and be sticky when commodity prices fall. Input prices for maybe things other than fertilizer, fuel oil, things like repairing your vehicle or your tractor, other things involved in the supply chain, those prices not coming down. So what might be the potential bottom line for producers in calendar year 2024? Producers are going to have a challenging year overall when it comes to narrow margins. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service plans to invest in partnerships to promote and fund research that informs and improves soil surveys at the national level. Randall Wiseman has the story. Now, this is all part of an ongoing effort to continue to provide critical data to the country, and partners are encouraged to prepare proposals. Each of the 2024 Cooperative Soil Survey Research proposals must include significant cooperation with soil survey personnel. That includes those at the National Soil Survey Center, major land resource areas, 
area sewer survey or regional offices. The work should have national or broad regional application to fill gaps in soil survey databases, along with providing new approaches to collecting or interpreting soil survey data and also addressing emerging issues in the national research priority areas. And performance on these could start as early as October of this year. To learn more, go to our website, southeastagnet.com. I'm Randall Wiseman. USDA is looking to hire more conservation engineers. Here's Gary Crawford. The government is making record amounts of money available for farm conservation projects, and the USDA is needing to find more conservation engineers to help producers with those projects. Kevin Farmer directs the Conservation Engineering Division of USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, and he told us... We've been going through a, a big hiring surge as a result of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law and Inflation Reduction Act. And through those processes, we've grown our conservation programs and the need to deliver. So as a result, we've actually brought on more engineers. So uh, we've done a lot of surge hiring, but right now we're at just over 1,100 engineers in the agency. But USDA needs more and is having a virtual question and answer roundtable in just a few hours now, Thursday the 22nd, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. For more information, go online, search NRCS Engineers Week Virtual Roundtable, NRCS Engineers Week Virtual Roundtable. Carrie Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And Kevin Farmer, the Director of Conservation Engineers Division of USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, tells us more about National Engineers Week. National Engineers Week actually was started by the National Society of Professional Engineers, and its focus has been on academic curriculum and supporting uh, competitions. And specifically, the week was chosen in honor of our first president, George Washington, who was an engineer and a surveyor. And it allows us to basically promote the uh, field of engineering, the opportunities in engineering, and encourage folks to seek uh, careers in engineering. So it's been around for a long time. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Holverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. AgNet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.